You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnis, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, the cowboy astronaut cigarette shirts are still flying off the racks over at Cotton Bureau. Yeah, I saw that. What are we up to now? 162 sold. Which has got to be some kind of record. Yeah, I'm sure no one has ever sold more than 162 t-shirts. In the history of shirts. No way. 15 days left. If you want to go over there to CottonBureau.com and pick up the Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt. Just remember, Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes are not for children. They are, however, for loved ones who might appreciate a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt for Christmas. Holiday season Hanukkah. is fast approaching Kwanzaa whatever you celebrate we got to give a shout out to our guys Johnny Ashcroft and Landon Armstrong who helped us design the Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes shirt I say helped I mean they just designed it yeah we didn't do a damn we stood over there like "Uh uh-huh good excellent if you got any design work you're looking to have taken care of you can find Johnny Ashcroft our guy over at electricapostle.com or Landon Armstrong heck of a talented illustrator at landonlarmstrong.com Ben, you know what else is fast approaching? What's that? Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club. That's right. You're going to be doing the Sisters Brothers. November 30th. November 30th. Uh, I saw your wife tweeting about it. That's right. That she's going to be in the building for that. That's right. My wife has not started reading it yet, which gives me some pause, but she is also uh, a much faster reader than I am, so it's possible she could just bang through it in a couple of days. She's read it before, though, right? Yeah, yes. Okay. I'm encouraged to hear you at least claim that you have actually told your wife about her invitation to participate in this book club. Because last time, as you recall, she was supposed to participate, and then we found out a couple days beforehand you hadn't even told her. Yeah, I dropped the ball on that. Yeah. Didn't want to repeat of that, though. So Learned from my mistake. When did you tell her? Uh, right after we announced it. Okay. Yeah, she's had a while to uh, get mentally prepared. I still don't 100% know if she's going to uh, join us, because whenever I say... Because she just finished a book, and she was like, now I need something else to read. And I was like, could read The Sisters Brothers, jump on that, <laughs> could be part of the book club. And she was like, yeah, 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 I should definitely do that. That's something I should do. And then she did not do it, chose a different book to read. I feel like your wife is going to be kind of the Nick Diaz of this situation, where... She's going to say everybody's on steroids over she, and over well, again? She already does do that. I never see her without her accusing me of using steroids. But it seems like maybe part of the appeal is going to be to find out Will Chad's wife show up? Will she actually be in attendance for the book club, as promised? It's Who a, knows? Yeah, it's a cliffhanger. It's a, uh, you got to show up to find out if she's there. Did we talk about this, that there is the possible involvement of a co-main event mom? Not one of our moms, but longtime listener Andrew Milligan told me his mom, former English teacher, was thinking about jumping on board for the Sisters Brothers book club. Oh, that's exciting. She might read it and send us a book report. Oh, wow. So I look forward to reading that book report. Speaking of which, if you read the Sisters Brothers, send us your book report. Yeah. You need to get those to us before we record on November 30th, or else we won't have any listener involvement. Not that we couldn't fill the time just talking about the Sisters Brothers, because we could. We're right, but we want to hear from other people. Uh, how are we doing on our plan to get together on Saturday, watch Chuck versus Tito 3 with your dad? 
Oh boy. Uh, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. Okay. All right. So is, it's a solid maybe. Is Chuck Tito three the same night as uh, Engano versus Blades the rematch? Yes. Okay. But that one is in China, right? Is it at like a weird time? Yeah, it's at like three o'clock in the morning or something like that here. Oh, the, nice. One, of course. Time why? Zone. Why wouldn't it be? So the uh, the move might be Chuck Tito. Just you, me, and your dad. I mean, he'd be into it. I don't watching gotta, Chuck Tito. I don't got to figure that part out. I know what he that he would be into it. Being confronted with the slow motion tragedy that is the human body. How we doing on the uh, Patreon, Ben? I know that uh, we got the stickers and the koozies ordered. That's right. So those are in in production. As soon as they're done, we're going to start getting those mailed out to people. The uh, Power Hour is now three installments old. Towering home runs, each and every one. Just getting more and more powerful every week. Uh, we're going to roll out tips for the well-rounded fight fan toward the end of the month. People have started sending us their topics for Ask Us Anything. We've got a few of those done. Emailed them out to people. They uh, they seemed like they enjoyed them. They they replied to say that they were awesome. Uh, we got a we got a pretty big backlog at this point. Yeah, because the ten dollar Patreons are taking full advantage of their reward to instruct us to have a private debate for them on any topic that they, that they so, you know what though? I'm pleased with desire. how it's gone. It's, it's, yeah. given, it's really forced us to branch out. I mean, I did not think that you and I were going to sit here one day and discuss musicals. And, and then yet, that happened. And yet we did. And didn't have to define irony. Another tough one. Right now we're sitting at 834. Okay. So we got, a, we got a ways to go still bef- before we get to 900. Still chugging along to 900. Danny boy down says he sent us some beers for the, uh, the affliction day of reckoning. Yep. We got those in my basement. Those are ready to rock and roll whenever we need them. Okay. Well, hopefully people jump on board so we can get to 900 before those go bad. Uh, since we're not at 900, you know what that means happens right now. We all know, and we all are all dreading it. It's time for another personal quote from Channing Tatum. <clears throat> I don't remember who said it, but I do believe that whatever age you become famous, you end up staying that age. Because from that point, you're not asked to be a normal citizen. I worry about Justin Bieber, man. That kid's wildly talented. I hope he doesn't fall down into the usual ways of famous young kids because it's so hard for someone to be responsible when they're not asked to be. Wow. Mm-hmm. Heartfelt. Yeah. Heartfelt uh, hope that Justin Bieber turns out okay. I don't know when this quote was from. Yeah. Feels uh, a little dated, maybe. Yeah. Like it kind of seems like maybe that, that ship has sailed, Justin Bieber-wise. The horse has left the barn. Yeah. That's what you're saying. And is just gallivanting around. We got music again this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check more out over on soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And of course, as you guys know by now, that's the word beats with a Z. Beats. Z. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Santiago Ponzinibbio establishes himself as a welterweight contender. And Neil Magny reestablishes himself as maybe the nicest guy in the UFC, especially in defeat. And in round number two, Bellator MMA journeyed to Israel last week and broadcast it all through the magic of tape delay. So it's not just the matchmaking that tries to pretend it's 2006. And in round number three, don't be fooled, you guys. The UFC, the UFC might be trying to hide it from us. But Francis Ngannou rematches Curtis Blades this weekend. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first... Like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. I just looked it up, actually. The main card of the Nganu Blades. UFC Fight Night 141? That's right. Uh, 4.30 a.m. Start time for the main card. That means... So actually, like, just about the time we'll be getting up might not be all that uh, 
All that bad of timing. Prelims begin 1 a.m. here. Well, no, ain't nobody got time for that. So I'm saying we just got to stay up and party all night long. First, Roll right into Beijing. First piece of listener mail comes to us from James Crow. He writes, holy fucking shit. Johnny Walker is my new guy. That ouchie, my leg hurt face. When the, when the Megatron elbow and then the Megatron elbow from hell. I love this dude. What do you think about What do you think? What do we think about nicknames? Is Black Label too on the nose? Now, Ben, we had been trying to figure this out yeah. the last couple of weeks once we saw Johnny Walker slated against Khalil Roundtree Jr. on the main card of uh, Saturday night's UFC Fight Night 140 from down there in Argentina. Uh, Johnny Walker ends up getting the, the, uh, the win, first round KO, impressive elbow followed up with punches uh, over Khalil Roundtree, which has got to be some kind of upset, you'd think, right? I think it was a minor upset, yeah. Uh, what do you think about Black Label as a nickname for Johnny Walker? Is it too on the nose? I still like Neat. Neat Johnny Walker. Okay. It, it works on two yeah, levels. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of different ways you could go with it. It's I mean, got, it could work on three levels, depending on what his home life right. is like. Yeah, maybe he's very tidy. Uh, I like that it is a whiskey reference, but not only a whiskey reference. It does not... It doesn't feel like necessarily the first thing that you'd think of. Um, plus, it's just like I would really love for anybody to have the nickname like Neat. Like Neat Chad Dundas. And people are like, oh, okay, well, he's really neat. He's a neat guy. Isn't that exciting? What do you think about Khalil Roundtree Jr.? Here's a guy who is 28 years old, clearly looks terrific getting off the bus. But he just seems like he's the kind of guy that can't break through in a... Uh, in a sustained way, I guess, you know, cause he's coming off the TKO victory over Gokin Saki at UFC 226. Uh, he had some stuff to say this week leading up to this event, uh, essentially firing back at the haters who said that that was a fluke, which is again, uh, uh, another thing where like when I hear from these fighters and they're like, Oh, I'm about to silence the critics who said that was a fluke. I'm like, who are these critics? Like what? Who's been saying is it just <laughs> is it just random people on the internet or is like they're an actual uh, person of substance that that these guys need to need to fire back at? Well, you and I have talked before about how for a lot of fighters adopting this "it's me against the world" attitude seems to be like a prerequisite. Yeah, bunker mentality. Bunker mentality. Yeah, that's what they call it. Okay, like you're you're in a bunker. Yes. Well, they use it to. Uh, when they're talking about team sports, mostly like you and your team are in a bunker. Everybody else is against you. Okay. All right. I guess I see that. Um, yeah. Like a lot of fighters seem to like to believe that there are powerful forces allied against them and that their entire career is a struggle against the odds. That one. I mean, we talked about at the time that whoever the UFC was going to call up to face Gokunsaki, they were not necessarily planning on that person being a real challenge or, or beating Gokunsaki. Right. They were looking for some more highlight reel finishes. They got one, just not in the direction they thought they were going to get. So I can understand how when the fight was booked, everybody was like, yep, they they want to clear Roundtree because they want him to go out there and get knocked out. And then he goes out there and he wins, and he I can understand him feeling a little bit like, in your faces, motherfuckers. Um, okay, yes, that's all valid. And in fact, if you look at it that way, then it's not difficult to make the case that there is, in fact, some kind of force working against Khalil Roundtree. The force or, being the UFC. Exactly. The <laughs> force making. The force not being the people that they single out as the critics, right? Right. Okay. So maybe some misdirected. Uh, not, I don't want to say it doesn't even seem like anger, but just sort of like misdirected uh, 
showboating a little bit or something there. Well, did a similar thing happen here? Did uh, the UFC think, all right, well, Johnny Walker is somebody people might be able to get excited about it. They see him go out there, pull off a good finish. You give him somebody who looks good getting off the bus, but who maybe plays into his hands a little bit skill-wise. And I got to say, you know, We've talked before about how at light heavyweight, it doesn't take that much for us to start paying at least a little bit of attention to you because there's just not a whole lot else going on. And this guy goes out there, a six foot five inch light heavyweight who can do a backflip, you already have my attention. Yep. Yep. No, I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, Johnny Walker walks away with a performance of the night award here. So uh, that, that's uh, the, both nice for him, and and since the here's the thing that I think since both of the guys who got performance of the night, fifty thousand dollar bonuses from the UFC are in fact Argentinians, Argentina natives, right? Uh, makes me think that we kind of knew what was up on the going in the front door here. I thought Johnny Walker's Brazilian, right? Is that try? Is that right? Did I, I have think, that wrong? I think he's Brazilian. Never mind then. <laughs> Still nice for him. Uh, well, they don't have enough Argentinians to just populate the card with Argentinian fighters. Like, we got to throw some Brazilians in there and be like, close enough? Like, that's just how you got to do it if you're putting together that fight card. Um, also, I feel like we may have mentioned this before, and if not, we really screwed up. Because have you looked at Khalil Roundtree's Wikipedia page? I'm looking at it right now. Uh, look down to the lone entry under in the personal life category. There's only one fact here and it is roundtree enjoys dancing and listening to music he is a fan of the village people you might think that that was an edit done by a prankster but it's it's got a footnote it's footnoted it's footnoted from the las vegas review journal a periodical of note he enjoys dancing and listening to music well now i feel like i know the guy better it makes me feel like we could have i like i want to see a highlight like a video vignette of Khalil Roundtree cutting a rug. Well, seems like he did a little stinky leg out there against Johnny Walker. Okay, set you up for that one. Yep. Next question this week comes to us from Barney Barnes, which I assume is a totally real name that we need not look up on the internet. He writes, <laughs> guys, not sure what I should make of Ian Heinish. On one hand, he steps in as a late replacement and grabs the win over Cesar Mutante Ferreira at UFC Argentina. So, yay. On the other hand, this guy once spent some time in prison for drug trafficking. Should we cheer his life comeback or jeer the fact that he was at one time maybe, quote unquote, in the life? Please advise. So, yeah. Uh, Ian Heinish, uh, he was in the Players' Tribune last week, kind of detailing his uh, his misspent youth, I guess you could say. Yeah. Growing up in Denver, selling a little ecstasy. Sounds like a lot of ecstasy. Getting on the wrong side of the law, living as a fugitive over there in Europe, spending a little time in a Spanish prison, almost getting shanked in Rikers Island. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of high points. I don't know if you call them high points, but like in terms of action. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff here, a lot yeah. of stuff to work with. A lot of living the, got crammed in, in the there. life of Ian Heinish. Uh, he's on the straight and narrow now. This is his UFC debut. Uh, he comes from a pretty good team. He steps in here at UFC Argentina and gets the unanimous decision win. Cheer or jeer? Cheer. Cheer. Um, the, the CH1. That sound, they sound similar. But uh, for one thing, uh, we got to make a real distinction here about types of crimes because I understand it when it's something where people go, Oh, Hey, go to Greg Hardy. Can't he have a chance to make a living? And don't you believe in second chances and all that stuff? You know, when you are involved in a crime that is really actively hurting other people, 
that to me is very different than you were selling drugs that people wanted to buy. Like I understand maybe that I take a different viewpoint on this than a lot of other people do, but I can't get too upset about a guy that was involved. Like if he's involved in drug trafficking, you're selling, you're selling a product that people want to buy. Fine. It's illegal. You know, you shouldn't do it. There's other stuff that often goes along with the drug trade that is uh, dangerous and bad. But if what you're telling me is like that the guy was selling ecstasy to people at parties, I can't be like, that's a bad guy. I can't be like, you know, screw this guy. I don't want to see him in the UFC because of that. That's that's not the type of crime that really just gets me fired up. Yeah, if we're looking for reasons to exclude someone from the UFC, we can find better reasons for other people yes. than what we've got here for Ian Heinish. We were talking before we started recording, though, Ben, about uh, some of the things that his story in the Players' Tribune makes clear about the differences between the penal systems over there in Spain and then uh, here in the United States. Yeah, like being, being in prison in the Canary Islands really doesn't sound that bad. Like, And I like his real distinction that they want to help you get better and make sure that you don't ever come back to prison, which is the thing that in the United States we kind of say we want to do with uh, incarceration, but... I don't even know if we say it anymore. I think we've all kind of given up on that. Uh, like rehabilitation is like a punchline in the United States penal system. But in Spain, he's like, oh, yeah, they gave me all these classes and we're actually trying to help me improve myself. Um, it's it's a well-told story. It's gripping. You know, there are times like reading it where you're just like, oh, holy shit. Like he he, he knows how to up some drama and, and tell it well. You know, I don't want to say... You make a fan out of me by telling me that he used to be a drug trafficker and then going out there and winning a fight. But I know who he is now. I'll say that. Next question this week comes to us from Matt Webb, who writes, Just watched Cynthia Calvillo damn near die walking up to the scale. What do you do about this? I do not understand putting the blame on the promotion or the athletic commission. I'm all about the fighters. And if the commission slash promotion... Uh, watches that and lets her fight, then yes, you should be blamed for that. But why in the fuck would anyone do that to themselves? It's all from a wrestler mentality, and quite frankly, it's dog shit. If you miss weight once, you should have a three-fight restriction from that weight class and be ineligible to compete. If, after your restriction, you miss again, you are banned from that weight class. Uh, test hydration levels if they get under a certain level prior to weigh in the fight is off and is a forfeit win goes to the opposing party uh we need to put the fighter we need to put the fighter at risk of punishment uh we are watching people kill themselves it's getting ridiculous how does one not understand wow i'm killing myself and how does a coach uh keep telling that fighter to make weight this isn't a promotion slash commission problem it's a culture problem i agree that it's a culture problem i mean i think the commissions and promotions can do more about it I'm always, though, suspicious when people want to reach for punishment as the answer to the problem, where they're like, okay, the punishments just aren't stiff enough for people missing weight. And I just don't think that that's the issue. I think, you know, nobody wants to give up some of their money and not, you take shit from fans and from promoters. And, you know, the stuff where a commission telling you you can't do this weight class anymore, I mean, California has done that, and it hasn't been super popular with, with fighters and uh, – not a whole lot of other people have stepped up to follow that lead yet. I don't know if the answer is just that we need to make it worse on people who miss weight because I think that it's already kind of bad and they they just they don't go out there planning for that to happen to them. I don't think anybody's too cavalier about missing weight. Yeah, it's a really tough question. I can't sit here and say that I know the answer. I think as long as you have 
weight classes, you're always going to have an issue where people are going to try to get into the lowest weight class they possibly can because they think it gives them advantage, uh, you know, short of like a, a complete cultural shift where people where it really takes hold that people who are not cutting a ton of weight and they're fighting closer to their natural body weight are doing better. Like if the, if the cultural view switches 180 degrees, so the advantage is seen to be held by the person that doesn't cut a bunch of weight, then maybe, you know, you start to, uh, you start to see something change. Uh, I'm not totally into the idea of punishing fighters more. I feel like we already have enough pitfalls set up in this sport for the people who already uh, essentially are on the low end of the totem pole in a lot of ways that I don't know that we need to set up more obstacles for them. Uh, and yet I do think that you could, you know, if you were serious about curbing weight cutting, you could, you could do more than is what ha- than than what's happening now. I feel like you could do, uh, you know, since you're already, we've talked about this before on the show, but since you're already sending, you saw the drug testers to people's houses a couple times a year. It wouldn't be that big of a jump to sort of have like a baseline weight on everybody in the promotion. And you could make some recommendations, I think to start out with about where you think people should be fighting. Uh, but in order to like have a, a huge like tectonic shift in the way people cut weight, I think it's going to, it has to come from the coaches and the athletes. I'm not, I don't, I don't totally think that you can, uh, legislate your way there yeah. on this issue. Yeah. Well, do you think that people are starting to to change their minds? Because you do see some people going up weight classes and having success. You yeah, know? I Anthony think that, Smith like, is one guy. And yeah, I mean, you, you, you see it some places where people are, right. they're not as dehydrated, they're performing better. Yeah, slowly but surely, I think people are, are kind of starting to change their attitudes about it, at least in, in some camps and some people. I know when I talked to Eric Nixick for a story uh, earlier this year, he's one of the head coaches at Extreme Couture. Uh, he was one of the guys who was there when uh, they had a fighter collapse during a weight cut, uh, Uriah Hall, and like couldn't make it to his fight. It sounded like a super scary situation. Uh, you know that they they thought that he was going to have a serious medical uh, situation on on their hands. And I know that like he he was kind of shaken by it, and now it, like admitted to me that like he thinks some of the weight cutting stuff is a little bit too crazy, and and has a hard time really advocating for people to try to cut a bunch of weight. Uh, when I did that story about recovery of fighters, I was kind of struck by the number of people that I talked to who seemed like they were really at least trying to take both uh, weight cutting and uh, brain health a little bit more seriously uh, than we had in the past. It seemed like a lot of people were, were trying to take a smarter approach. So I think that there's some some hope moving forward. Uh, but again, like it's it seems like the kind of thing that is going to change slowly over time and not necessarily the kind of thing that is going to be you know, wiped off the wiped off the planet just by uh, some new rule changes or something like that. Although I will admit that like the Cynthia Calvillo situation was super scary. You know, when you see her on the scale and she can't really even walk to the scale and yet she goes out there and gets the win. Yeah. And so uh, when that kind of stuff is happening, like, I don't know that Cynthia Calvillo will walk away from this situation being like, well, I shouldn't try to make one fifteen. True. That is probably not the lesson she's taken from this. All right. Uh, last question this week comes to us from, Hank Vandenherk. Okay. Again, uh, probably a real name. Yeah, probably not the alter ego of a Dutch superhero. I heard you were looking to expand MMA nomenclature with a term for the situation where a close fight 
has two judges score it by 29-28 for a fighter each, but a third one has it a clean sweep 30-27. It got me thinking of how other sports have terms for their, for the, their scoring outcomes, but also that we need more uh, wealthy middle-aged white men in the fan base of our little weird sport. Therefore, I propose to call that specific situation the eyebrow-raising scorecard, a birdie. Oh, and it's spelled like Adelaide Bird. Yeah, the, the it's a uh, spelling joke that's really going to go over well on the radio. We got we got several uh, submissions for what we should call this. One of them being a birdie. Someone else wanted to call it a duck duck goose. Yes, which I, like uh, that I don't one. think is the worst thing in the world. Uh, we got a uh, like a, a long German word. Someone wanted to uh, you know uh, uh, give it a give it a name, sort of like Schadenfreude. Yeah, but I can't remember what the word was. Well, that's so, the problem. That's a so, problem. I think like I'm leaning toward duck, duck, goose. Although scoring a birdie is not, it's not terrible. It does kind of roll off the tongue. Yeah, it is a little difficult though to turn it. It's a, you got to see that it's spelled out in order to really kind of get the joke. Otherwise, you just think it sounds weird. It's it's a golf term. It is also a golf term. Yeah. That's correct. So we don't want to con- confuse people. It's a good thing in golf, too, which, again, we don't want to get people turned around. No, we don't. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben Gentoboa, hey. Santiago Ponzanibio comes away with the big win in the main event at UFC Fight Night 140, stopping Neil Magny in the fourth round with a one-punch KO, kind of like the uh, the delayed reaction one-punch KO in some ways, because he kind of laces Neil Magny with that punch, and Magny's body is like, oh, maybe I'll grab on to Santiago Ponzanibio and uh, take a breather. And and Neil Magny's mind says nap time because yep. then he goes right down on his face like a cut tree. So what do we think here? Santiago Ponzinibbio kind of, uh, you know, dominated this fight. Neil Magny had some moments, but the uh, wicked leg kicks of Santiago Ponzinibbio and the aggressive striking uh, were definitely the difference. So he walks away with the victory and a performance of the night bonus. He calls out Tyron Woodley in the aftermath. Uh, what did you make of all this, Ben? Are you willing to accept the good guy? Santiago Ponzanibio as a UFC welterweight title contender right now. Yeah, I think I am. Uh, clearly, he's a good fighter, has good skills all around, and he can hurt you. Uh, you don't have to try that hard to get me to think that that's a title fight we're going to see. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to sit here and be like, "God damn it, make this fight happen now," or I am going to be super upset. I, I feel like. This one can mature a little bit. It can take its time and kind of kind of age this one until it's just right. I, I don't have a problem with that either. If you tell me Santiago Ponzinibbio needs to fight someone else first, you know, a, a real contender eliminator kind of thing, I'd be okay with that. Here's what I wonder a little bit about. 
it seemed pretty clear early on in this, or not early on, but like earlier than the fourth round finish, it seemed like uh, Neil Magny was hurting there. You know, he just before he gets knocked out, when he's trying to get up, you can see him wincing, trying to get up on that leg. Was that one of those situations in MMA where we're just like, all right, we're going to go to the last possible. We, we can see where this is heading, but we're going to go to the last possible minute to carry you out on your shield kind of thing. Do you think that maybe someone should have stepped in there and helped old Neil out? Maybe, although, you, you know, the, I, nobody's going to be happy with a stoppage like that, least no. of all Neil Magny, probably. And I understand that we got to protect these fighters from themselves in, in certain instances. But when it is a uh, uh, an issue of, of brain health and you've been stunned by punches and you're, you're loopy on your feet, I could see, you know, stepping in to stop a fight a little bit early. Uh, in terms of, like, damage from leg kicks, uh, I don't know, man. I feel like as long as the guy is game, you got to kind of let him go unless he literally cannot stand. And True. in this instance, like, yeah, man. He could almost all, not stand. We, we saw the end of the road for Neil Magny, but, but he was still game and out there trying to give it his best. Uh, unless it's an instance where the, where the fighter themselves is kind of like, okay, that's, that's it for me. Uh, I think you, I mean, obviously you got to take it as a case by case basis. There's no blanket right and wrong way to do any, anything in this sport. But like in terms of leg kicks, I kind of got to feel like you got to give the fighter the benefit of the doubt as long as you can. Yeah, I understand that. But I think the thing is, he's definitely diminished to the point where it's not that I'm that worried about the damage from leg kicks, but that the the leg kick damage has made it so that he has limited stuff he can do back. And so we're just kind of waiting around for the bitter end. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand your point. It just seems like a weird... Uh, it would seem like a weird way to stop a fight. Kind of like, kind of like a, uh, an anticlimactic way to stop a fight in, in, in many ways that I don't think would make very many people happy if they stayed up super late to watch <laughs> UFC fight night One Forty. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. I did not stay up super late to watch UFC fight night One Forty because it was one of the rare events that I did not have to do any work for it on fight night. So I was able to just record it on DVR, enjoy it, you know, the next morning, incredible way to enjoy a UFC event. I I, I kind of don't understand anybody watching it live if you don't have to. Because it was not that hard for me to avoid spoilers. I was able to just watch it at my pace, skip through all the filler. You know, a six-hour or whatever event, I can I can get through it in a couple hours. I really enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. No, man, this has been my life for a while. Since <laughs> the job I have doesn't necessarily... Uh, uh, require me to, to to write anything about these sort of like low profile UFC fight night events. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, this is how I've been ingesting them for a while. And I will, I will grant you that it is clearly easier slash better because you get to skip all of the farmers only and general commercials. It's a different watching experience though. Uh, in, in, in a lot of different ways, you gotta kind of try to avoid spoilers. If you want to right. have a, uh, an unblemished reaction to the event, I guess. Uh, and, and you also miss some of the nuance, I think here and there, like you don't, you might not watch a prelim fight that everybody was talking about at the time because of some weird happening. You just like, don't know about it. You'll probably find out about it later, but, uh, it is a different experience. And it, for a long time now to me has, has called into question exactly what the UFC is, is aiming for with some of these fight night events. 
uh, and, and whether it's it's a sport that you that you have to watch live because for a long time MMA was the kind of thing where it was sort of like appointment viewing. Man, you had to be there to see what the what crazy shit was going to happen. Now it almost feels like a catch up kind of sport. Like you're gonna whenever you get some time, check it out on your DVR and fast forward through most of it. Yeah. Well, do you think that's okay? I mean, is that just? I think it's hard to break people out of that. Yeah. I think once you found that way, like, uh, it's tough to convince people. Okay, well now wait though. Now you got to come back. Now there's some shit you got to see. Well, but live. there are still going to be like big events where people will for sure they'll break themselves out of it for, for sure. like a big huge pay per view. Yeah, absolutely. But the majority of the content at this point is kind of like fast forward content in certain ways. Unless your uncle's fighting or something like that. Well, yeah, my uncle's fighting. I'm probably going to have to see that one live. We did have a, one of those weird situations where, as luck should have it, Tyron Woodley is, in the, is on the desk for this thing. Uh, San, Santiago Ponzanibio calls him out after the fight. Woodley essentially uh, tells Santiago Ponzanibio to take a, take a number, slow your roll a little bit there. Ponzanibio responds by saying, I understand fully why he says that. He wants to hold on to his title as long as possible. He knows that if he does fight me, I'm going to knock him out and I'm going to take his title. So he wants to keep extending his reign for as long as he can. And that's why he keeps saying that I still have a long way to go. So a little bit of uh, trash talk, some light trash talk from Genta Boa, Santiago Ponzanibio. It's mentioned here that... Uh, Potential next opponents for him would be Kamaru Usman or Rafael Dos Anjos, either of which seem fine to me. Yeah. Uh, good good fights, probably action-packed fights. Let's talk a little bit about Neil Magny because no one takes a, a loss in this sport quite like Neil Magny. Yeah. Just like, I think it's pretty obvious I'm beat up, Magny told reporters after the fight. Beat up and disappointed. Obviously, it wasn't my night. His power was impressive. Whether it was the jab or a cross or a hook, I was still looking up, wondering where that punch came from. He has speed in his hands, power in his hands, and precision with his punches. Neil Magny, just every time he loses, he comes out and is just a uh, a first-class guy. Yeah, he just seems like a super nice guy. And remember, uh, he was also the guy who, when he lost, he got submitted by Demian Maya. And then Demian Maya was in the same city at one point doing a jiu-jitsu seminar. And he was like, hey, can I can I take your seminar? And yeah, just like, obviously the guy knows something that you don't. Let's go see what you can learn from him. That's, that's a likable trait right there. Uh, also seems like the kind of guy who gets lost in the UFC shuffle. Because he's not out here calling people all sorts of names and making a spectacle of himself. Yeah, he really does. He came into this fight on a two-fight win streak, uh, Carlos Conant and Craig White. He'd won three of his last four. Uh, and yet, when we look, when you look at this event and you're like, oh, wait, the main event is Magni versus Ponzanibio? Like, that's one of the things that, that makes you want to have the night off and fast-forward through it the next morning, uh, which isn't really fair for these guys. But at the same time, you know, just as we said earlier, uh, Earlier about Khalil Roundtree, Neil Magny is a guy who's super tough. He's always going to be a fight for anybody in the world, and yet he seems like one of these guys that he just he just can't break through in a way that uh, that has really vaulted him to the top. You know, he had the uh, the long win streak in 2014, 2015 that ended with that loss to Damian Maya, uh, and since then he's always been one of these guys who wins a few fights and then loses one, and then kind of has to get back on the horse with a couple of wins. Uh, do you feel like at this point we have seen? the high watermark of Neil Magny that like 
we know that he is one of these guys now who's going to win more than he loses, but he's still he's still going to lose his fair share. Yeah, maybe. But I also think that uh, he is a well-rounded enough fighter that he's probably going to surprise you a few more times. I think that there's a lot of people you put him in there with and uh, you you might think that they're contenders until you see them three or five rounds deep in a fight with Neil Magny. I think that he's, he has that kind of ability to wear people down and get you. And, you know, Santiago Ponzinibbio, he might end up being the best welterweight in the UFC right now, or one of the best welterweights. So losing to that guy, taking a knockout after you're already pretty beat up and losing some of your ability to defend yourself is not necessarily like a, a mark of shame. All right, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we can move on to round number two, Ben, I took in, some LFA action. Oh, I was just going to talk about this LFA. Oh, over there on Access TV. Well, I don't know, man. Maybe we have the same. Are you fucking kidding me? I think we do. Me? I think is we it do. About the, is it about Lil Badger? Uh, is, I'm talking about the uh, the knockout Moses Murrieta. No, that's a different fight. Okay. But that one was also awesome. Uh, long time uh, podcast listener hit me up on Twitter to be like, are you watching LFA? It's crazy. And I was like, is this a trap? And she was like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> you should check it out. So I went and watched it. And LFA was, in fact, totally awesome as a as it kind of has a a practice of being what I was going to make my are you fucking kidding me? This lightweight fighter whose real name I don't have on here. I just want to say that his nickname was Lil Badger, which is awesome. He walks out, Ben, and you forget about this as a uh, as an aspect of independent MMA because you watch a lot of the UFC where everybody wears the same trunks. Now, this dude who apparently is a big horror movie fan walks out for his fight and his trunks are like an all over print of Linda Blair from the exorcist <laughs> during like the scary scene where her head spins around. Yeah. She's no, all, I know uh, the scene. Yeah. she's, uh, uh, infected by the devil. Are you fucking kidding me? It was kind of like the awesomest thing I had ever seen. This dude's <laughs> all those over made. Yes, they are. Uh, we all, I also heard from on Twitter from the, uh, the woman who makes them and, oh. uh, they are awesome, and you forget that there's people out there wearing all over print horror movie tights. Wait, you fucking kidding me? So I love it. Can I like contact this woman and be like, "Here's a couple frames from a movie. Make me a garment." I think so. I think she is in like the activewear business. Okay, seems like uh, just judging from her social media presence, she probably makes stuff for fighters and pro wrestlers. Good to know. So there you go. Your next Halloween is already taken care of. Um, not that I want to cast aspersions on the nickname Little Badger, which I agree is awesome. Badger already not a really big animal. I understand that it's uh, like an homage to his coach, who is the Badger. So uh, this okay. guy is the Little Badger. All right. He was also wearing an awesome catch wrestling t-shirt uh, in honor of Eric Paulson, who I guess is in the hospital. I didn't know that. But, oh, uh, no. Sounds like Eric Paulson might be having some health issues, but Little Badger was, uh, was wearing his uh, catch wrestling shirt. Well, I hope Eric Paulson feels better. I got to be honest, the whole thing kind of made me be like, are we just dealing with a higher level of graphic design in indie MMA than I remember? Because there are some sharp dressed fighters out there. Well, there maybe there's an opening for that now that the UFC has gone all Reebok all the time. Uh, my, are you fucking kidding me from the LFA event? Uh, Moses Murrieta lands a, a pretty nice little two punch combo to Sadia Parker. Yeah. And the knockout this, there's just something weird that happens the moment that this, the punch land. It's like his legs have decided to do different things. Yeah, he folds up. Yeah, folds up into a pretzel. Uh, and he gets his nose like exploded, which is gross. Yeah, it was. I mean, 
that was really all I could do was when I saw that was say, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. That shit was crazy. It was nasty. And there was like a spinning back elbow knockout on the same card. I saw that one. That, so, one, that one was bad too. I guess we're coming out pro LFA here. Yeah. If you, uh, if you want to hear Pat Militich on the call, uh, if you got an open Friday night, like I did, you can do a lot worse than checking out access TV and, and, uh, LFA. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad Bellator visited Israel for a special event out there. Bellator 209 uh, went down over there in Tel Aviv. Uh, You'd think that you have a streaming service. You're able to broadcast that one live no matter when it happens. Not the case. However, tape delayed on both both, uh, Paramount Network and DAZN. And, uh, you know, I caught a little bit of it when it finally did air and... Then I was reading a little bit of stuff on, on MMA Junkie afterwards, especially about, you know, Patricio Ferrer, the, the, the other Pitbull brother. One might say uh, the greater Pitbull brother. Yeah. The, he's not the lesser Pitbull no. brother. He's the, uh, the leading Pitbull brother. Yeah. Pitbull superior. Uh, he goes out there, defends his featherweight title, and now he has the most uh, victories in Bellator history. He has the most... Victories and title fights in Bellator history. Chad, I can't believe I'm even going to ask this, but is this Pitbull brother, is he the best fighter in Bellator history? Kind of snuck up into being that, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Like, and, and sneaky, not only because there's two of them. So number one, you got to be able to tell them apart. Yeah, that is still, it still confounds me that they're both just going to be Pitbull brothers. And number two, it's it, sometimes it kind of feels like, Scotty Coker ain't booking a show unless there's a Pitbull brother on there. Right. You know what I mean? It feels like our kind of running joke about Bellator is like, all right, well, you're going to roll into Uncasville, Connecticut with a Pitbull brother somewhere on the card. Yeah, but Patricio Pitbull, uh, he's 28 and four overall now. This was his second straight defense uh, of the the, uh, Bellator Featherweight Championship. I believe his was his second reign or or third reign. I don't know. He's he's been around the block. He's been around the game. Let's just say that for a while. Uh, and yeah, man, like sneaking into Bellator greatness without really, uh, without really being all that ostentatious about it. I think we all know, uh, you know, as a general belief that the Pitbull brothers are tough dudes. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of strange. I don't know that if you were like, who has the most wins in Bellator history, Patricio Pitbull probably wouldn't be my first guess. Well, it does make it, though, difficult to assess who's the best fighter in Bellator history using those kind of stats because a lot of the good fighters that Bellator has come over from the UFC later in their careers. And so it's like they don't have necessarily great history or great stats within Bellator. Uh, I mean, does something like this make him like the best? You put an asterisk next to it, like you're the best homegrown Bellator talent. Are you better than Gegard and Mousasi and, and Rory McDonald and people like that? Well, if there were a Bellator Hall of Fame, okay, Patricio Pitbull seems like a guy where if they put him in there, you'd be like, yeah, okay, all right. Whereas if they put Hoist Gracie in there, for example, <laughs> you'd be like, come on now. Who are you trying to fool? Come on now, Bellator. You know when I was talking earlier about 
how it's a different experience to tape delay the UFC and watch it in the morning. Yes. Because you got to avoid spoilers. It's probably a commentary on Bellator 209 that I had no trouble avoiding the spoilers. <laughs> like, if you wanted to find the spoilers for Bellator 209, you had to go looking for them. And it's not like this tape delay was short. No. It was a day or two that, like, been between the live thing and it actually airing in America on Paramount and DAZONE. So, I don't know, man. It just feels like Bellator, like, gets get some momentum and then they've got good fighters over there and the heavyweight grand prix seems like a huge success uh and then you like bell stuff like bellator 209 still happens and it's kind of like you remember oh yeah it's still bellator still bellator over there right they're delaying events from tel aviv and the next one is going to be at the uh, windstar casino in thackerville oklahoma which is actual fact they are going to be at that casino in thackerville oklahoma for the next event bellator 210 does it seem like this is a is this a bug or a feature? Do you think for Scott Coker? Because I mean, it's good that they're that they're doing all these events. It's good that they get over to Israel and do this event in Tel Aviv. I bet they made some money on it. I'm sure that there are internal reasons for having these events that that carry a great amount of utility for Bellator. And yet, I think the 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 onlooker from the outside, you see it and you think, okay, well, it still makes Bellator seem a little bit small time. Yeah, I remember you, though, laying out the strategy for Bellator as one where they got to hang around. Yep. Don't blow a bunch of money trying to sprint after the UFC and catch it from behind. Don't make any sudden moves. <laughs> just, just just hang out and be kind of quiet. Just sip your drink. Yeah. Stand in the corner. Don't fuck up, but keep churning out like steady shows, steady content, and just keep chugging right along mm-hmm. and wait for the UFC to make a mistake. Yeah. Because for a while, it, it when things got real dark for the UFC, it seemed like implosion was not probable, but didn't also didn't seem like a complete impossibility. Do you think that's still true, though? Like, I still think that, like, I still think that Scott Coker is doing a good job. I still think that Bellator is is a a, a viable commodity, uh, and yet I don't. It doesn't seem like the UFC is going to dry up and blow away so much as it did a year or two ago. Do you still think that that's the best approach? Just like uh, no sudden moves kind of a. I don't know, because you putting out solid stuff. Well, it seems like if you were to try to pour a bunch of money into that sprint, you're just going to exhaust yourself the same way we've seen a bunch of other promoters do. You're going to run out of money. And then then what? And also, I mean, I guess I'm I've been a little surprised at how successful the UFC has continued to be at least like business wise when you hear about you know getting a, this deal with ESPN getting a better split with pay-per-view providers stuff like that like financially the UFC has got to be looking at the way things are turning out and going well we must be doing something right we don't have to fix anything at all yeah everything is turning up UFC yeah I'm kind of surprised by whenever I talk to someone who is outside the the MMA bubble, but still kind of like a fight fan, like someone who will be interested in a Conor McGregor fight or someone, someone who probably considers like thinks, thinks positively of MMA, but doesn't, you know, study it under a microscope. Like many of us do. I'm always surprised at to the extent to which they think that the, the UFC is just doing awesome. They'll always be like, so the UFC, huh? Just like still churning out awesome fights. Like everything's just going great over there. And I'm always, I always have to be like, yeah, like yes and no. Like it's probably going great for them. I don't know that it's going great for us as people who watch it, but like, so I think that they still, 
like among people who are interested have this the shine. The shine is still on the on the three little letters. Well, then that leaves you with Bellator. Can you just keep doing this indefinitely? Kind of just chugging along? I guess you have to. Like I was just while you were talking, I was just thinking, I wonder if it's just a situation now where you have to kind of tell yourself you're not really all that concerned or interested in what the UFC is doing. You just have to kind of keep doing the Bellator thing and making sure that it remains viable. Making sure you got a pit bull on every card. That's right. Uh, speaking of remaining viable, Ben, Phil Davis caught a loss here yeah. to Vadim Nemkov. Uh, Ryan Couture, as an aside, starting to look more and more like his dad all the time. Smaller, smaller version of Randy, but as Ryan Couture ages, I'm starting to see more of the Couture uh, genes start to take hold. Does it, is that just because every time you look at him, it seems like he's beating somebody up in a clinch? Yes. And then, like, taking them down with, with like, a uh, not an explosive double leg, but just sort of like a, I'm going to grab you around the hips and drag your legs yeah. out from under you. You're going to go down eventually. Style takedown. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's going to show up, start showing up to events wearing, like, weird ruffled pirate shirts. His dad <laughs> did there toward the end. Bunch of scarves. Yeah. Back during the, uh, what I would like to call late Randy. <laughs> what not Rand- early Randy. What Randy are we in now? Uh, well, now I think we're in post-Randy, right? Okay. I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, I assume he's still uh, in tremendous physical condition, probably uh, catching a job here or there. I'm sure we'll get a chance to see when the camera pans over to him in the crowd at uh, Tito Chuck 3. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, what do we want to make of Phil Davis? Yeah, man. Uh, Phil Davis, it's been... I, I guess I want to say that... It's been surprising to me that he just ended up being so kind of middle of the road in Bellator. Um, I don't know. I really don't know what to to make of his career at this point because it seemed like there was a time where we were like, where people were like, Phil Davis is going to be the next John Jones, right? Yeah. And now it's like you're you're losing a split decision to Vadim Nem- Nemkov over in Israel for Bellator. Yeah. Well, it kind of depends on what he's got left from here. I think he's 34 years old. So like not young, but also not done. Uh, he's six and two in Bellator at this point, I think. So like, if Phil Davis goes out there and rattles off four wins in a row and is back to fighting for the title in various weight classes, uh, then maybe we look at this loss of Vadim Nemkov as kind of like a, an aberration. But it, it could be a signpost for sure because this is one uh, when you see the results to the to Bellator two hundred nine. This is definitely the biggest eye raiser. Eye razor? Eyebrow razor for me. Sure. Yeah. This is the one I blink at. Yeah. Okay. Stop doing stuff with your eyes. Does that make sense? All right. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, speaking of losses that make you squint... There was a time, circa 2017, when Francis Ngannou was the toast of the damn town. Especially coming off that harrowing knockout of Alistair Overeem at UFC 218. You fast forward to the latter stages of this year, or the year of our Lord 2018. Francis Ngannou kind of fallen on hard times here a little bit. He had that loss to Steve Miocic when he fought for the title at UFC 220. And then, just a stinker against Derek Lewis. A real staring at, contest there. At UFC 226 that he also came up on the short end of things during. And now he's staring down this rematch with Curtis Blades 
Curtis Lionel Blades, Miami PI. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've noticed what's going on in the career of Curtis Blades, but since his loss to Francis Ngannou back in April of 2016, Curtis Blades has rattled off what is, what is originally six wins in a row. And he has his win over uh, Adam Milstead overturned in February 2017 because Blades tested positive for marijuana. Everybody knows how we feel about that. That's some bullshit. We count that. So let's just say six wins in a row for Curtis Blades, including now back-to-back wins over Mark Hunt and Alistair Overeem. This seems like a tough matchup, maybe a tough matchup for both guys. But if you're Francis Ngannou and you're coming off back-to-back losses and you hope to rekindle some of the fire, some of the uh, public interest that you had leading up to those those two losses, like Curtis Blades is kind of a, a tough a tough roll of the dice as far as I'm concerned. What if I went back to January of 2018, pre-UFC 220, that, you know, maybe the week before UFC 220, everybody's talking about Francis Ngannou, maybe he's going to be the next big thing, and I told you, Chad Dundas, that before the year was out, Francis Ngannou would be fighting on a fight pass card in Beijing in a rematch against Curtis Blades and would be a damn near two-to-one underdog. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a fall. That's a fall from grace. Well, and I can see what people are thinking there if they make Blades the favorite because especially the fighting style we've seen of him recently, you know, for better and worse, his ability to take a hard shot and not get knocked out as he did against Mark Hunt to find a desperation takedown when he needs one seems to mesh pretty well with what we've seen of Francis Ngannou's strengths and weaknesses recently. Yeah, I mean, Francis Ngannou is still a guy that I don't think you want to get hit by. No, even I'd rather if, not. Even if you have uh, that ability, the ability that Curtis Blades does. Yeah, I'm going to say no. I do not want to get punched by Francis Ngannou. And despite the fact that Ngannou beat him back in 2016 over there in Croatia, uh, it feels a little, by, little bit like the Steve Miocic fight laid out a blueprint for what Curtis Blades will want to do in this fight. It's interesting, like when I called up uh, the big homie Patrick Wyman, friend of the podcast, when I was working on my story about Francis Ngannou uh, almost a year ago, I guess, at this time, uh, I wanted to talk to him about Francis Ngannou because, like, uh, back, Francis Ngannou was really riding some, some, some hype at that point. And so I wanted to call up, like, an independent fight analyst, somebody that doesn't have any skin in the game for the UFC or anybody else, and be like, okay, how good is this guy really? And Patrick Wyman is like, I think Francis Ngannou is really, really good. And, and you know, just because of his his age, because he's younger than a lot of those contenders, I think that there's a good chance that he ends up being the champion at some point. The thing that surprised me that he was saying was another guy that I think is really, really good in the division is Curtis Blades. And that Curtis Blades is going to, uh, you know, really, really be somebody as we move forward. And and to Patrick Wyman at the time, Francis Ngannou's most impressive win was that win over Curtis Blades. Because he was like, that's the one where when Ngannou won that, he was like, okay, this guy's for real. Yeah. Well, which I is think, like, it's like two different tracks to the to where they currently are. Right. Francis Ngannou was kind of number one with the bullet, and now he started to fade. Curtis Blades has been taking the Bellator, uh, stand in the back, don't make any sudden moves, <laughs> sip your drink and see what happens approach. And at this point, they, you know, you you can make a, like a clear argument that Curtis Blades has been more effective. Well, what do you make of Dana White's very ready criticism that he will launch into at a moment's notice that Francis Ngannou basically his ego blew up, uh, which is always a funny criticism coming from the UFC because it's like 
hey, can you believe this guy started to think that he was so great just because we were engaged in a nonstop media campaign to make him seem so great? Yeah. Uh, and you always wonder, like, what are you actually pointing to? Because he will just say, like, oh, you know, I had run-ins with him. People who had uh, who worked for the company had run-ins with him where you just couldn't believe this guy's ego. And then Francis Ngannou will be like, I don't know what the hell that guy's talking about. Uh, and you wonder... Is it a thing where he made like unreasonable demands or is it a thing where he was like, I want more money and the UFC was like, hey, we're, we're trying to tell other people you're great. Don't don't start acting like it to us. I don't know. And but like Dana White holds it up as like, see, this is what happened to Francis Ngannou. It wasn't that like we overhyped him or that he never was as good as we said. It's that he believed his own hype too much and then fell off as a result of that. It's very weird because while I didn't spend a ton of time around Francis Ngannou, we all, people who are in the business know what it's like to hang out with a fighter who is delusional, Mm -hmm. like hang out with a a fighter. Because every fighter basically takes this attitude where they're like, well, when I'm the champion, everything will be different. And that's, that is about to happen. Like that's, that's the, I almost at this point view it as a necessary psychological trait to be a successful mixed martial artist is that you have to have this belief where you're like, I'm about to be the champion. Yes. And after I'm the champion, all my dreams will have come true. Uh, and Francis Ngannou definitely had that confidence. But the last thing I would say about the guy was that he was arrogant. He seemed, at least to my view, super down to earth. Like his, if you've read about his life story, he just seemed like a guy who had been through so much in his life that he was kind of like, well, fighting is just fighting at this point. Like fighting, not that it's easy, but like, I've been through worse. So like I was really surprised to see Dana White say that stuff. And like, you know, Francis Ngannou was in this position where the UFC had essentially opened the doors to the uh, UFC training center in Las Vegas to let him train there, uh, which they do with, with a number of fighters. But like when the UFC does that, when you, when that's like your home gym, like they think that you are a big deal. They're, they're not going to let just anybody roll up in there to the UFC PI and and like, you know, get your curls in, get your three sets of 10 curls in. Uh, so, like, I think there was a lot of evidence to suggest that, yeah, man, the UFC thought Francis Ngannou was like the next Mike Tyson kind of figure in MMA. Uh, I didn't necessarily get any arrogance from him. And especially after he lost those two fights in a row after the Derek Lewis fight, Francis Ngannou kind of came out and said, like, uh, psychologically, I was just not ready, which is like the opposite of arrogance. Yes. Right. It's like the. uh it's like he got kind of like financial or psychologically smashed by Steve Miocic and hadn't put himself back together in time to have that uh, fight against Derek Lewis. Yeah, he said, I think uh, specifically that it was his fear. It was fear that came from the, the Miocic fight that he carried into the fight against Derek Lewis, which you're right, does not strike you as a guy who has got an out-of-control ego if he's out there calling himself afraid uh, because that is something fighters usually just don't do. Um is this an absolute must-win for Francis Ngannou? Like you said, I mean, it's still a tough matchup and everything, but to go over there in Beijing in the middle of the damn night, do you have to beat Curtis Blades in order to pump a little bit of uh, fire back into the Francis Ngannou campaign? I'm going to say yes and no. Like, it's it would be very, very bad to lose three in a row, I think, uh, you know, just as compared to where, where we were a year ago, thinking that, that he might be the champion. But at the same time, like he is only 32 years old and we've seen how this goes in the heavyweight division before. Like a guy can lose three fights at heavyweight and if he comes back and has 
two impressive knockouts in the wake of that, he'll be back and we'll all be screaming and yelling and running around about how awesome he is. And sometimes that's all it takes to kind of like tumble ass over tea kettle into a title shot. So it's a must win for now. Is it, does it like wreck him as a viable heavyweight title contender? If he loses this fight? No, I don't think so. Like, would hope that nobody will fucking see it because it's like another aspect. Weekend. Another aspect of it is they're hiding it from us, so there. That's a good thing. If well, you, if you for the loser of this contest. Well, and you know the people who uh, are thinking about, well, do I have to wake up super early on uh, Saturday morning to get my MMA fix? Actually, you don't because Chuck Tito three oh. goes down that same night. Yeah, if you're looking to take something in in prime time, yeah. right, live as it happens, you can jump on the Get first ever yeah. Golden Boy MMA card headlined by Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz 3, the next step in the best of five series <laughs> that will be Chuck and Chuck versus Tito. Oh, man. Uh, I assume we're going to end up talking more about Chuck Tito 3 on the Power Hour later this week, which if you are a Patreon of $5 a month or more, you obviously have access to. And if you are not, then you should be because the power hour is just a whole lot of fun. Um, but, uh, man, I'm seeing my, my near future here where I end up watching Francis Ngannou and Curtis blades from Beijing at like five o'clock in the damn morning. Um, maybe being sad, who knows, depending on how that one goes. And then got to kind of collect myself, Probably probably hit up a nap, then roll into Chuck Tito 3 at your house with your dad. It feels like if there were ever a time that the Huntington Beach bad boy was going to come out and spring a win on Chuck Liddell, now would be the time, right? If, if Tito Ortiz is ever going to beat Chuck, it's in this fight, isn't it? Yes. Well, yeah. Because well, I mean, it definitely wasn't in the other fights. <laughs> right. Like, but this seems like his best opportunity to me. And if he doesn't win this one, we're calling it off. We're calling, <laughs> calling the whole the best thing of five thing? Yeah. Oh, no. Well, that's a lot of pressure for him. So what time should I show up? Do I need to bring uh, chips? Yeah, you're going to have to bring some some hors d'oeuvres, some appetizers. Okay. Some apps. Just throw a bunch of Thanksgiving leftovers yes. into, a, into a great big bowl. You see, up. now you put your finger on the, uh, on the unidentified dark horse here in this whole race that this is the day after Thanksgiving. Well, like so everybody is everybody yeah. is going to be familyed out, partied out, uh, stuffed. Starting to think about whole thirty, maybe doing whole thirty <laughs> come January. Yeah, uh, is that going to have an effect on this on this weekend's plans? Are people? Is there going to be? Are there going to be a lot of people just sitting around, nothing to do? You're hiding out from your family, even right. though they're still in town. Are you going to be like? Motherfucker, maybe I will watch this Chuck versus Tito fight. Maybe. I mean, because you're not going to go out and party on that Saturday night. You know, you don't have that in you. Probably not. No. Probably not. You're going to be like, I assume Chad has already ordered the pay-per-view and he and his dad are sitting over there. Stack of pizzas. Waiting for me to come over with a box of wine under my arm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Half empty box of wine (laughs) left over from Thanksgiving. (laughs) And uh, guess what? You're in luck because here I come. That's boy. I'm excited for this now. It's gonna, we're going to make a party out of this thing yet. All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben. And then, uh, we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I'm just saying, uh, you know, there's been all that talk about is Conor McGregor going to fight Cowboy Cerrone next. Is that the one we're looking at? Uh, then Dana White is asked by TMZ, uh, if that's the fight that, uh, is being booked next for both those guys. He replies that it is quote, Absolutely not true. So I'm just saying, you know what that means. It's probably true. 
probably true. Probably true. Now we can go ahead and get excited about it. You, you can't really get excited until you get the non-confirmation confirmation from Dana White. Until he calls it absolutely not true, then you don't know for sure if it's happening. Now, you start to feel a little bit like this party's going to get started pretty soon. Mark it on the calendar. Uh, ben, after Vadim Nemkov took out Phil Davis... I figured the least I could do was check out to see what this guy's got going on on social. Okay. So I rolled over to Vadim Nemkov's Twitter. Come to find out, Vadim Nemkov may have the perfect approach to Twitter. First of all, as someone tweeted to me after I screenshotted and said, hard not to love everything Vadim Nemkov is doing on Twitter, his avatar picture looks like he used his public library ID photo. He's wearing like a button-up Oxford shirt with kind of a bowl cut and a smile. He looks, it looks like it might be his freshman wrestling picture at the uh, University of North Illinois or something okay. like that. Uh, his, his wallpaper is a, clearly a Russian Sambo shot where he's wearing headgear and a gi and he's punching somebody in the face, to which I was like, okay, box number two is checked to get yeah. me to love this. Box number three, Ben, Vadim Nemkov has been on Twitter since 2014 and he has not tweeted. <laughs> I'm just saying Vadim Nemkov is a black belt on Twitter. That's all I'm saying. Has 95 followers, I see. He's doing it right, man. Following 27 people. He's doing it right. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to uh, tell you about all the stuff that happens in the post-Thanksgiving weekend party that we've got laid out for ourselves now. Uh, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into Chuck versus Tito uh, come Friday on the Co-Main Event, Co-Main Event Patreon Power Hour. Check that out. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. And looking at the list of people who Buddy Nemikov follows, and uh, I don't feel like I was hoping I would get a clearer picture of what's going on with the guy. I feel no closer to understanding him. Who's he following? Uh, a bunch of Russian accounts. Okay. All in the Cyril account. So I have no sense. idea. So you really have no picture? Nope. You were, you were being a little. I've learned nothing. I'm telling you, man. He's good at this. He's got it down. He is. 